Welcome to the Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson. And I'm Melissa Polizzi. Today we are discussing sacred objects and not only the way that magical items or weapons or tools or crowns and rings and vehicles appear in mythology, but also the way that we imbue objects with a kind of magic or significance in real life, whether that maybe is like a favorite pair of socks you wear or Elvis's guitar, which is worth a million dollars for some reason, even though it's just a guitar, or the kinds of things that we think are very valuable, even though they're not made of anything valuable. They're not made of gold. And yet this knife I have that I take with me on my camping trips, it's very important to me for some reason. I treat it like a friend. So all of that is kind of wrapped up into this notion of how objects can become sacred, how they can become magical items, how they can seem like they are resonating with power in some way, both in story and in real life. Mm. It also has this quality to it, I think, that it serves the psyche very well to come into relationship with the items around us, not only because it helps us stay present and sort of grounded in our environment, but I think it sort of plays upon that that mythic dramatic structure of of the deep psyche. At that core there, we create story out of everything and we start to kind of bring to life the items around us and the vehicles we drive and the clothes that we wear. It makes sense to us. Just naturally we do it. Even sometimes when I'm about to cook something, I like name it, which is really weird because I'm about to eat it. But in some ways I'm acknowledging it. Like like a proper name? Like, like this is this, this is, is George friend, the chicken. <laughs> George, I'm going to eat him now. Is that what you mean? Um, and so I'm like, I'm like, hey, this like put that little guy in there. And it's like I've created him. If you ask me, I could give it a name. Like I've profiled it. And in some ways I'm like honoring it mm. and I'm and I'm lifting it up from being just a simple object that has a a very you know menial purpose to something a little bit more and to me things feel more alive when i do that yeah so this narrative faculty in our psychology very much the way that we um make sense of reality navigate reality is a story right we're yeah. sort of weaving yeah. a, a personal myth there is the story of where have i been and what happened to me and why in the story of the future. Where am I going and why? And this really is the way that we structure our reality is like a story. And that's the reason why stories and movies and TV and myth uh, have the effect on us that they do. Uh, in some sense, they're not real, right? Quote, unquote, but mm -hmm. they're so powerful. We watch a movie and we, we can't we can't even make a decision to not be grabbed by it. Yeah. It's there. We recognize the story. We understand the heroes and villains. We understand the ups and downs of the story instinctually. Um, and you can see how that's playing on the way that we actually interpret our own lives. Is We can only make sense of where we come from by having some notion of struggle and achievement and goals and the things that failed and the things that succeeded. Mm. And the personal story is not just made up of people. It's not just me and my parents and my siblings and my friends, and that's the story. 
there's also objects. There's yeah. there's places, but there's things like, uh, you know, the Toyota Corolla that I had when I was 16, my first car. And mm-hmm. we just drove around California, like in my car, me and my car. And the car plays this important role in the story. Yeah, yeah. It's not clear what it means exactly. Uh, there were running shoes. I was a, I was a serious cross-country athlete. And there were shoes that I wore that's like the thing you wear when you run essentially i mean there's like shorts and t-shirts but the shoes are really powerful for some reason and it's like what is it about uh these shoes that are part of my myth Mm. part of my story Mm -hmm. or my guitar my high school guitar this really crappy green guitar that i had it's part of my story there's something sacred about that guitar yeah it's part of my myth and we can see that um at play that sort of magic that surrounds not only beings like gods and mythology, like we talked about last week, the Pantheon, these beings are a way that we sort of project archetypal contents onto reality and make sense of it. We have these gods that are fighting with each other, but within that we also have gods who have items, mm-hmm. objects, swords, crowns, um, all kinds of things. Yeah. It gives us the ability to create that container for yes, that like archetypal layer of relationship to the world, but also the deep personal layer. And what makes something sacred beyond a collective sacredness, you know, like you might say like a a religious figure, you know, you put that up in your house, of course it's sacred. It's like carrying so much energy from the collective, but around us, around your room, around your home, in your car, you're carrying those sacred items with you, those personalized sacred items. And it helps I don't know. You have a relationship to reality where things aren't trivialized. And I think that's important. It helps you honor uh, where things have come from, how you earned it or how you found it randomly gives you, as you said, that kind of like a marker, like these little anchoring points in your life. And then you get to fill that container with all of these inner contents. And some of that is like really interesting, dynamic pro- projective material, shadow material, even Um, some of it is things you're aspiring to that the object uh, contains. So it serves a pretty important purpose. And I think if anyone doesn't have those sacred items around them, they either don't realize it or they're maybe just missing out on that opportunity to really come into a more dynamic relationship with uh, the flow of their life. Right. Um, In some ways we live in a very materialistic society, right? Mm -hmm. And even more so with uh, the internet, the availability of things, the convenience of things, mm, the fact that right. you can get anything on Amazon. Right. Uh, you can get cheap stuff from China. Yeah. And it's so cheap <laughs> that it almost doesn't seem very valuable. Right. Like, oh, I just like bought like a 10 pack of t-shirts so right. I can just wear one every day and then throw it away and it wouldn't even be that big of a waste. Mm. And that's kind of strange, right? Yeah. yeah. The, wait- the wastefulness the trivialization of items, mm. and you can see um, the opposite effect. Um, if I so, if I have tons of stuff, I own tons of things. If my house is just full of all this crap, it's not clear that any of it really matters yeah. that much. Yeah. The house burnt down. Yeah, that would I would be unhappy. That would that would be not cool. But at the same time, it's like oh, that stuff's replaceable. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really have that sort of significance to me compared to someone who let's say is in a desperate survival situation. If we imagine someone who is even not in a survival situation where they're like, it's like really life or death, but let's say someone who's going backpacking, for instance, the gear they have with them is very important 
and it's very, very a, a minimalist kind of sport thing where it's like you really only want to take with you things that really, really matter. Mm. So you have your knife and you have your tent and you have your food. Obviously, you have like a water pump. You might have a hat, sunglasses. All those items are incredibly important for yeah. your journey. And if you lost any one of them, it's not just like, oh, oh, well, I'll replace it later. I mean, mm-hmm. it depends on how serious of a backpack, backpacking journey you're doing, but still all those things sort of become sacred. Yeah. And it's partly why backpacking can be fun is because you have gear. Everything matters. Everything is important. Everything needs to work properly. You can't afford to lose it. You can't afford to damage it. And it makes all these items sacred in some sense. They're valuable, but even beyond value, they actually have a special relationship to you. Mm-hmm. My knife is special to me. Yeah. It's like a friend. I might even go as far as naming it. Mm-hmm. I really want to develop a relation, a sacred relationship with these with these items, as opposed to just saying like that knife is just like any other knife. It's yeah. just a thing you can just sort of chuck it in the garbage. So we can see how we're playing around with this. People who live off grid, for instance, everything that they have with them because they're not hooked up to the city, they don't have like central heating or central water, everything is so much more important. Mm. They may need to like prep for the winter if you're living someplace like Alaska and you're off the grid. And you can see how the objects in their life, someone who's living off grid, like they become more important, they become more personalized. There's something more magical about the items Mm. as opposed to someone who lives in downtown San Francisco, for instance, and just is hopping around from city to city, 10 cities in the last 10 years and all their stuff can be thrown away. But even them, even they have probably some few key items that they want to keep around. It's like, this is special. Yeah. Whatever that might be. Yeah. There's certainly like those heirloom items or something that I've had since childhood that carries this dynamism to it. Um, You keep it around for a reason. But I think it's been a really interesting practice in the last few years to recognize the items that I've chosen and the relationship I've created to them and the personality that's emerged (laughs) it's like the best way to put it and it and it just creates a real interesting vibrancy and it's made me also be more discerning about what else I bring into my space or wanting to not go for that cheap easy item all the time but rather something that I think I'll use for a really long time so like higher quality maybe that's um, artisan made or is like vintage in nature something that's durable that already kind of carries a bit of character with it but also something that I feel like is going to integrate into my life and and that's I don't know I don't know if anyone does that but I think it's really interesting yeah yeah of course and I, I think you know aesthetics come into play with these things yeah certainly you don't want just any old thing like doesn't matter how it looks you want something that that fits the look you want or or maybe it's it's just beautiful Mm. you want an item that is beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's hard to put our finger on what that is exactly it 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 depends on the use of the item it depends Mm. on how big the item is what kind of shape it is but aesthetics comes into play where um, it's easier for an item to feel sacred if it's beautiful for some yeah. reason. And there's sort of a link between the two. Mm. Mm-hmm. Things that are beautiful seem precious. They yeah. seem like they should be protected. Yeah. Things that are beautiful, we don't want to just destroy them or throw them away or deface them or yeah. vandalize them. There's more of a sense like this is something that should be protected. Like yeah. let's protect the beauty of the world. Yeah. And that's true for things you wear, I would say obviously, but not always obviously. A lot of people don't really care what they wear, but... Um, 
anything, even, you know, an Apple computer, one sort of thing that's like genius about Apple and about Steve Jobs is the appreciation of aesthetics. Mm. It really, really, yeah. Steve Jobs especially, and this is why people thought he was such a crazy asshole is because he was so <laughs> insistent upon aesthetics. He really wanted things to look good. Right, especially back feel then. good. Computers are pretty weird looking, yeah. boxy, kind of just like this eyesore. Totally functional. Yeah, functional. Yeah. Yeah, but then like, you know, the Mac came out yeah. and it was beautiful. Not at first. Well, maybe by the, rel- the, relatively. Wasn't the big one called a Mac? Which like one? Like the one with like the blue. It had like the color. Yeah, that was, the, that was the iMac. That was the iMac. Yeah. Yeah, not their first computer, but still. And now I remember seeing those when I was younger. Yeah. Just being like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was like that bright turquoise. Like, right. Super interesting. Yeah, but it's an interesting point because, I mean, like, you look at, like, an old sort of, like, Windows machine. Yeah. And you look at an old Mac and you can see that Mac was really, really trying to make things beautiful. And you can see that customers recognize that. Mm. Humans see the Mac and they're like, that's beautiful. That's true. I like it. It feels good when I use it because it's beautiful and, like, it's so sleek and simple and pure. And we can see how that kind of ties into this notion of sacredness. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but I'm sure Steve Jobs would agree with this. Is like, the Mac looks sacred. Yeah. Whereas like the PC <laughs> looks like crap, you know? And like, and that matters. And of all these enge- engineering does. types, all these like bearded fat guys, I'm sure were just kind of like, that doesn't matter. Like, I'm Seth Rogen and I'm Steve Wozniak in this movie. And like... <laughs> The way the computer looks doesn't matter. Like no one cares, Steve. I mean, but. okay, but think about like our sacred spaces, temples, churches, right. cathedrals. Yeah. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're stunning. Every part of them is a sacred object. Right. And that's the point. Yeah. They want the sacredness to surround you. Yeah. They want it to penetrate you. And you feel it. Or like you're walking even through like a modern city now and mm-hmm. you see an old cathedral. You're just kind of struck like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. There's something about that like aesthetic quality that just like ignites this numinous quality of like the divine. Yeah. Something that like just draws you into it and makes you feel something more something different Mm -hmm. okay so to ground this conversation let's talk about some mythology Mm -hmm. and the objects Mm -hmm. the sacred objects that appear in myths sure yeah classical and modern yeah i think we'll we'll go through a couple different examples that i think illustrate how all different kinds of seemingly mundane items become mystical and magical and imbued with this quality of godliness in mythology. So the first one that came to mind was the Argo, Mm -hmm. which is the ship that Jason um, and the Argonauts all travel upon to go uh, um, retrieve the golden fleece. Mm. And the Argo is a ship and it has... It can actually speak. It has these prophetic qualities, but it's also a vehicle. It's the vessel through which they are able to move, you know, from one space to another. So yeah. it's extremely functional. It's something that you see in every single heroic story, but there is something particularly powerful about the Argo that it had this like kind of magical piece of timber in it. And that mean it that meant it could speak um, and render prophecies. Mm. And so it was kind of raised up to this mythic level. And if you think about that sort of from a psychological perspective, what does it mean for these 
uh, vehicles kind of in a way to become a part of the story yeah. to, you know, like a chariot that can speak, you know, or like the talking car. It's like the, the ship, there's something about it. And we, we see like modern versions of this too, where the, the vehicle, the seat of will that, which kind of, um, leads our directionality not only is important just from that practical standpoint, but we need to have a relationship to it. Mm -hmm. And you can see also in dreams, when we dream of um, cars, buses, planes, boats, whatever, that is a symbol for, for the kind of uh, directionality of ego consciousness. It's like, how are you moving through life? Do you feel in the seat of power? Is someone else driving? So this is like a really interesting mythological example of those early manifestations of the object becoming sacred. Right. And, and vehicle is a metaphor we use quite often. Mm. Just, just like that implies this pretty clearly is like a vehicle of transformation. Yes. Right. Yes, it's like yes. you can use tarot as a vehicle for transformation mm -hmm. in some sense. It's like, mm -hmm. what does that mean? It's like, well, you get in it and it takes you somewhere. Yeah. It takes you through a gateway and you <laughs> yeah, become a yeah. new person. We actually use that metaphor a lot. So you can see how in these mythologies, the metaphor, the, the symbolism of the vehicle is mm. really powerful yeah. and you could understand how just in a very archetypal evolutionary, just instinctual way, something that can take you across the sea mm. is like, whoa, like yeah. that's fucking amazing. Well, it changed everything to be yeah. able to do that. Right, like, right. In the Mediterranean, yeah, like yeah, the story especially. of the Mediterranean is like it's ships, yeah. it's trade, yes. it's conquest, yes. it's... Um, all this mingling between peoples in the Mediterranean and, yeah. and, and same with planes. I mean, the idea of like something that takes you into the air mm. or something that takes you to the fucking moon. It's like, it's <laughs> yeah. insane. You can see how humans would be like, that is insane. Yeah. What, a, what, a, what a sacred thing, a powerful thing, this thing that can take you to a new world. Yeah. And then and, to imbue it with life. Right. It gets a personality. You right. can talk to it. In the story of Jason, he eventually returns back to the Argo when he's... Uh, a down and out old man and he does die in the boat and it kind of crashes on him but like <laughs> that's also it a symbol crashes on him <laughs> the, the the boat is falling apart okay. and he spends like the night there and like a beam falls on him and he dies but that's symbolism too it's like the captain's going down with the ship and at this point like jason's life is like a total mess like medea killed his kids spoiler alert and <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, it's funny. Spoiler alert. We're going to say that every single episode we do probably. Yeah. Anyways, but the vehicle coming down, the vehicle crashing or the, the, the vehicle falling apart yeah. is also a very compelling, very potent symbol and that it represents a part of Jason because as he's, as he's dying, as he's falling apart, so is the Argo. Right, so him and the, Ar the Argo are one entity, almost. Yeah, there's a really strong connection, yeah. Right, and so the Argo collapses mm. or falls apart, and so does Jason yeah. with it. And yeah. I mean, that that really is what is happening with sacred objects, is they are an extension of the body yes. or an extension of the mind. Mm -hmm. You can understand how early man, when they first started using stone tools the first time that it kind of uh in the evolutionary timeline that it became clear that humans were using things mm -hmm. to accomplish tasks yeah. that was like three million years ago um 
you can understand how the tools that they started to use would become an extension of the body at mm-hmm. first. Like a sharp rock is sort of an extension of the hand. And you can see how as consciousness has evolved over time, tools have been sort of exapted higher and higher into consciousness mm-hmm. until like we have like digital tools that don't even exist. Yeah. Like we're, we're using a software right now to record this, but it like, where is it? And it it's strange, right? But <laughs> right. It, it actually is an extension of my mind, yeah. of your mind, of your voice and my voice. The podcast is a strange extension of our bodies yeah. into the internet. And that's really, really weird. Mm-hmm. But you can see how the sacred objects, they do represent sort of an extension of the body. Yes. The ship is an extension of the legs yes. that will take you somewhere. Yes. They are wings of some kind that will mm-hmm. fly you somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we can say that even with a sword, a sword is an extension of the arm. Uh, a necklace is in some sense like an extension of like your psyche or your mm. aesthetic or yeah. it's much more abstract to think of like about a necklace. But you can see the way that like personifying objects in some sense or maybe doing the opposite, which is sort of assimilating objects into the self is what is happening with this sacredness. Yeah, yeah. So another example is the Holy Grail. And this one's interesting because it's an extension of Christ as this, uh, the vessel that received his blood upon Mm. his death, or as he was hanging there, Joseph of Arimathea came and caught his, some of his blood from the wounds into the vessel and... Right, the spear of Longinus, right? Yeah, the spear of Longinus. stabbed by the Roman soldier, Uh Longinus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the blood is caught by the grail. Right. right? And the spear also is another very prominent symbol that's in the grail legend itself. Um, But the grail is interesting because you can think about it from the sort of evolutionary uh, perspective of like, what is the role of something like the bowl or the cup or the vessel of, of life? So often we see stories of the grail or or grail like items being Mm. life sustaining or life giving that they're continuing this relationship we have because it, it literally holds food, but it also holds then like this uh, this kind of symbolic quality of life. You find the Holy Grail and then, you know, you're granted eternal life or yeah. you're granted a sort of healing. But so you see that both from that material relationship of, of how we might have come into contact with these items as they uh, kind of entered into culture and then how he raised it into an even more sacred space so that we connected it to that deity that we worship. Mm-hmm. And it acts as that extension of Christ in the Grail Legend story. It's the, the real like vessel of redemption and individuation for the for the Grail Kingdom, for Arthur and the land, for Percival. So it plays this deeply important role, but it's just a it's just a goblet. It's just a it's right. just a cup. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a stone, actually. It's like it has different versions. Sometimes it's just a stone and it's deeply sacred. Yeah. And the lance too, like that actually has is another it's another sacred object that's part of the story. And it wouldn't be as interesting or as dynamic if we didn't have those grail items. Right, right. So I mean the grail it's interesting because you can tie this to the story of Christ. And there's sort of like the things that touched Christ are sacred. Yeah. Like the cross itself. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about this, but I'm pretty sure like the idea of like, where is the cross that, mm. that Christ was crucified on? Like yes. if we could find it, like what a sacred object that would be. Or the sign above his head that said, here lies the king of the Jews. I don't think it says here lies. I think it's king of the Jews. 
um, or the crown of thorns, mm-hmm. like all these things mm-hmm. that like supposed to like touched Christ. Um, it makes sense that those would be considered sacred. It yeah. makes sense that someone would, if it actually you know was out there somewhere, if the crown of thorns was out there somewhere, that people would pay what would be price us. I mean, y- but you would give all this money to to acquire it, and the question is sort of like, well, why? Yeah, it seems self-evident that that makes that that would be true they're like of course they'd want to acquire the 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 crown that christ wore when he was crucified but it's like but yeah it's just a, but it's just thorns why is it sacred yeah why does it matter it's not christ himself but it's like no but it kind of is christ there's something and, and about we it we still do that nowadays yeah. it's like as you said with like elvis's guitar yeah. or like some clothes that a celebrity wore right or like a lock of hair or something like that like that's a yeah. kind of like creepy version but yeah. it's like oh i have like <laughs> a lock of like kurt cobain's hair like oh my god like and it's like it's just hair it's like that's the kind of stuff you throw in the toilet or in the yeah. trash but we can see the way that we imbue other humans with magic power. Mm. We rise them up to the level of deities. We talked about that last episode. It's mm-hmm. like our tendency to do this, to want to sort of project all this godliness onto things. We'll have something to worship. Yeah. Um, and we can see the same. It's true for items. These tools associated with the person, with the God, has some of that magic juice on them, yeah. some of that mojo that's in the item somehow. It's imbued into it. And we can see how the item isn't easily distinguishable from the body mm. the cup of christ is not easily dis- distinguishable from the hand of christ yeah they're kind of the same thing and that's sort of a, a human thing humans uh again like they sort of uh they meld they sort of combine with tools yeah. it becomes part of the body um and we perceive that instinctually but uh that sort of sacredness gets projected onto these items yeah and uh also the the symbolism is playing with this, right? The, mm. the cup of Christ or just a cup in general or mm-hmm. the cups in tarot, right? Right. There's yep. a symbol mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. that's being played with that is wrapped into this magic power. Yeah. Symbolism and the magic, it's not clear if they're really distinguishable. The cup symbolizes uh, a vessel. It's something that can be filled. It can be empty or it can be full. Uh, it's receptive in that way. It, mm-hmm. it, you fill it with whatever you need at the time. There's sort of that adaptiveness, that passiveness to it. So it's considered like a feminine kind of object yes. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the cup is this vessel that uh, the water is life bearing. It's life sustaining. Yeah. You drink from the cup and it gives you immortal life. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. The cup has like this thing that contains water, this thing that contains the creative or chaotic energy. Yes. Um, and we can see how that symbolism, that archetypal symbolism that we can't fully make sense of is part of that imbuing of sacredness. Mm. The symbol is sacred because it represents something. We yeah. don't really know what, but there's something archetypal in there. Yeah. So another Arthurian example is the round table. And it's interesting because I think that term the round table mm-hmm. has become like so potent in the collective consciousness. Like we know immediately what we're referring to, but the idea that there was supposed to be a group of virtuous knights gathered together to kind of be like the, the moral core of the land for the, the kind of aspiration of all other, you know, up and coming knights who would uphold the, the moral authority of Arthur 
didn't really have to be a table, you know, you know, it could have just been the collection of night, Arthur's nights, but there's, there's something very interesting about this symbol being selected, this terminology being selected. And then that sense that even when you're sitting at a round table, there's a kind of really interesting dynamic because everyone kind of has an ability to see each other at the round table. Mm, yeah. Um, we're, we're tapping into that like circular mandolic nature of the self, like the, like the circles right. really potent Jungian symbol. And this is where Arthur and his knights congregate. Right. And so there's all of these implications into the, the status of sitting at the table, but the, also the equality of it mm. and the, the moral authority that they're all carrying upon their shoulders, all imbued within the round table. Yeah. I mean, we weren't planning on talking about this, but like, uh, the concept of sacred geometry kind of uh, comes up <laughs> yeah, because of the yeah. word sacred and mm. the, the, the circle is kind of like, depends how you think about it, but I would say like the circle is like the most sacred shape. Mm. There's sort of like a wholeness or oneness or yeah. sort of like the monism of that or the, uh, the infinity of it, mm, like the, mm -hmm. the sidelessness of the circle yeah. and sort of like the circle is like the default shape of reality. Things in space are spherical. That's the physics of our universe. True. Planets are spherical. Yeah. Stars are spherical. If you have liquid in space, it becomes spherical. It takes a spherical shape. Yeah. So there is also that going on here that mm -hmm. ties into aesthetics. It ties into symbolism yeah. and it ties also into sacredness. They're like sacred shapes and that's very strange. And cathedrals can be built in like the shape of a cross. Mm. And is it just that the cross is associated with Christ or is the cross itself a sacred symbol? Is there something about it that speaks to us as like yes. that's beautiful or pure or it communicates sort of like the intersection of life or the yes. perpendicular mm -hmm. nature of things sort of crossing or who knows, right? Yeah. To that point of it, the shapes themselves being sacred, especially for anyone kind of like well-versed and like the Jungian point of view, the, the circle is always associated to the archetype of the self, which is that God principle. And it seems to spontaneously uh, arise from the unconscious as a mandala and often then with like a fourfold structure or some sort of element of the balance or repeating patterns within it, or there might be a ring, a golden ring that appears in a dream, or you see that theme, that theme a lot in fairy tales that there's some sort of like circular sacred item. And due to that motif popping up so much and also seeing it woven through religious traditions, that circle is pretty much the most you know sacred shape that at least the Jungians would say. And I agree. I think it's extremely powerful. You kind of gaze into it and what, what gazes back from within you. Um, it represents that ordering principle and that wholeness. So the round table to me, it's not a surprise that the table is round and that we also, we say it's round. That's mm -hmm. what's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's the shape of it. We want, we need to know that Arthur and his knights are at a round table and not a square table. Yeah. I mean, square table is default, right? Yeah. Nothing sacred about that. Nothing sacred about that. No. Uh, all right. So in, in talking a little bit about fairy tale motifs, uh, Vasilisa, the beautiful, she, the heroine Vasilisa carries a doll with her. That's sort of 
imbued with the dynamic energies of the mother. Her mother gives it to her like upon her death and says, feed it and talk to it and it'll help you out or, you know, carry this with you, Vasilisa. And it does through, through all of her interactions with Baba Yaga and her evil oh. stepmother. She kind of, uh, turns to the doll, gives it a little food. And, you know, the doll says, you know, go to sleep, Vasilisa, like everything will be okay in the morning. And then suddenly like, you know, all the chores were done, but there's this idea that the doll being carried with her, especially I think, um, as a woman and who was once a very young girl who has this connection to dolls and, uh, or like stuffed animals, there's something very sacred about that relationship. And in this case, in the fairy tale, the doll is imbued with the energy of the mother and the lineage. And so she's carrying it with her. And you can think about that from a psychological point of view as her being able to step back into the wisdom of her mother through the doll and navigate through all of this difficulty and challenge that she's being faced with. And, and she's pulling upon those, those roots of the mother and that's imaged as the doll. Right. That's interesting. There's, there's a few things that come up for that. The, the idea of an item given to you by an ancestor, mm. like that's sacred. Yeah. Like we're familiar with this notion. Uh, you could say like that was my mother's reign. Mm-hmm. It's an important reign because it was my mother's and it was her mother's before her and her mother's before her. It's like, wow, that's a big deal. Like this reign has been in your family for like generations. That's a sacred object. And you can see how we could think of a doll given to Vasilisa by her mother as an extension of the mother itself, mm-hmm. right? And the, and the mother is sort of guiding her along the way, even though she can't be there. She's still sort of um, imbued into the doll with her magic power. And that reflects, that's like a mythology of the same thing that we're seeing in real life. Yeah. If you have something that belonged to your mother and she, maybe she has died, and you carry it with you, you can still imbue that item with your mother's energy yeah. and it will remind you of your mother. Feel comforted by the mother. Right. And yeah. like, if it's like, what would I do in this situation? And you look at the rain mm. that your mother gave you and it's like, and you think about what your mother would have done in this situation. And so you can see how the, the item sort of transcends the body Yes. in this way. It transcends death. The mm. mother, mother is still with you. You can have your mother still in your mind and you can think about her, but really having an item yes, with yes. you is different. Mm-hmm. There's something about that that has more of that um, reminding power. It's almost like a sacred post-it note that like you see it and it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember. Yeah. Instead of just having to recall some idea in your head, it's like it's there, you look at it. Mm. Um, and that, that connection to your ancestors and connection to your children who will carry the torch after you mm. and the items passing through the generations. Yeah. There's a sacredness that, that comes from that too. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to think about was um, the doll as being a kind of feminine object. Yeah. And it's very feminine. Little girls have dolls yeah. and the dolls um, are important to them. Mm-hmm. They, you could say they're sort of sacred and they might really, really get upset if the doll is lost. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as simple as saying, well, well, she's just treating the doll as a person. It's like, well, there's there's like kind of like that aspect is that uh, women are better at being social than men. Mm. And they might be more attuned to the feelings of other people than men. Mm. They might be more attuned to uh, relationships, healthy relationships. And even at a young age, there's sort of 
expressing that power, that skill through interaction with a doll, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, and you can see how there's something sacred about this externalization of human power, of relational power, of social of social beauty that is being mirrored in the doll. Yeah. To the girl. Yeah. And boys, not so much. Not as much. And and I think for young girls, it is very instinctual. You know, like I was raised with my brother who's only just a little bit younger than me. So mm-hmm. I think we were around a lot of the same stuff. And I think there is just like this natural relationship um, to gravitating towards, not necessarily like overly girly things like Barbies and blah, blah, blah. Like, mm-hmm. nah, not like that. I think there's something I've always found extremely compelling about like a stuffed animal or... And I think for me, a little bit more on like the animal side than like a baby doll, but mm-hmm. it's it's something that feels very real and very embodied to me, and something I can create a relationship with versus like a truck. I'm just like, eh, like, <laughs> yeah. But I can create a relationship to it through through that relational quality because I it takes on uh, a personality, right. My favorite stuffed animal, you know, as a little kid, it's like, I know what it was called. It had a name to me and I had a relationship to it. Right, right. Yeah, the kind of male version of the doll is like, you could say like, well, what what about like G.I. Joe's? Yeah. It's like, yeah, but it's it's not the same thing. (laughs) It's like the the boy is sort of living vicariously through the Mm, G.I. Joe more so. Sure, sure. Like the girl is not living vicariously through the doll. Like the doll no. is sort of a companion. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The doll yeah. is sort of like a That's friend, true. It partner. Is the G.I. Joe, I mean, again, we're generalizing here. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say how, uh, if boys don't have like companions that they like make up in the sense that, because they, they probably do. Yeah. But it's more, it's more likely that they have sort of this, this um, faculty of abstracting ideas and tools and going outward and doing things through their action figures mm-hmm. right and like mm-hmm. the word like action figure it's, it's like true action the figures, boy is like yeah. i'm acting out being a soldier and like right. here i am like the soldier like, and like you can right. see kind of the masculine mind living through that mm-hmm. sort of like he's preparing to like i will be a soldier and i'm like sort of playing with the idea i'm extra- abstracting the idea of being a soldier out through the action figure. Yeah. And that's a little more of a masculine way of interacting with the world is sort of this outwardness, mm. this doing as opposed to like presence and sociality yeah. of the feminine. Yeah. So an example of making items of clothing, things that we wear sacred, uh, Hermes sandals, I thought was an interesting thing that came to mind. Obviously he's a God and his sandals were created for him and are already magical, you know, like it makes him able to fly, mm-hmm. you know, um, Hephaestus created them for him. It was, it was forged then in, in the land of the gods, but it reminded me of what you were just saying a little bit ago during the intro, which is like, I, I was a serious runner mm-hmm. and I had a particular pair of shoes that was sacred to me. Yeah. So it's like, what is Hermes sandals? It's like, well, Perseus, you know, who is a demigod, but still needs the sandals to be able to fight Medusa, needs to have some sort of sacred item given to him to help kind of bolster his chances of conquering the monster. So there's a sense that what in your closet is like, that's my lucky hat. And if I'm going out and doing this thing, I need to be wearing my hat. You know, mm-hmm. like we we do that with certain elements of, yeah. of our clothing and we see it in the mythology yeah. as well. 
Right, right. The whole, whole idea of magic, right, is something that is sort of easily dismissed or scoffed at with a materialistic point of view or materialist point of view. But um, magic isn't just superstition, right? It is something that we actually perceive as things have an energy to them. They're not just material. They're not just stuff, right? And so like this lucky hat, let's say, that you have and you wear it and it brings you luck and it makes you feel grounded. It's not, you can't just dismiss that and say, well, that's just not real. It's like, okay, but yeah, but when I put it on, I actually do feel more confident. Mm. It's like, yeah, but that's placebo effect. It's like, maybe, or like maybe the things that we wear and carry with us actually do affect the way we act in the world. Yeah. Maybe the shoes I wear in this cross country race, they're just shoes, but there might be something about them that is deeper than just this superstition. Mm. They make me, I know that they make me look cool. They're comfortable. Um, I've worn them a few times and I've succeeded when I wear them. Is that just coincidence Mm. or is there actually something going on? Mm -hmm. It's complicated. And we can see the sort of the magic, the perception of magic is at play here. Um, And it's not superstition. There's there's actually an uh, unconscious, implicit perception of patterns that are happening that the rational mind wants to like (laughs) just deny and say, well, that's ridiculous. But it's like, but maybe there actually is a real implicit pattern happening here under the surface that we can't pick up on. But if we let our unconscious sort of breathe, it picks up on the pattern and it sees that as like, I'm drawn to it. It's beautiful. I want it. It's going to help me. It's magical. Yeah. It's a little bit of like the chicken or the egg, like what comes first. Mm. It's like, it actually doesn't matter. But as you said, there's like this dynamic relationship of both of these aspects feeding into each other because by wearing like your lucky hat or the shoes that you happen to win all your races in, it opens up like a psychic pathway towards confidence, towards a feeling of certainty, towards, um, you know, just like a a vibrancy or vitality, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It like brings you online. And if you didn't have it, you might feel like you're at a disadvantage. And if that's a type of placebo effect, ultimately it's, it's showing that elements of the psyche are being constellated and, and activated. And that is powerful. That is magical. Mm -hmm. So the eye of Horus Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the eye of Horus, I wanted to bring this one up because I was considering like how uh, the material world and not just the items, but our actual body can become sacred and how we have quite a few versions of mythology where some aspect of a body part kind of becomes uh, ritualized and, and symbolized then as this powerful sacred object. So in uh, Egyptian mythology, Set and Horus were fighting for the throne after Osiris's death, and Seth like, gouges out Horus's uh, left eye, I believe it is, and eventually, like most of the eye was restored. But um, when uh, when Horus's eye was recovered, he offers it to his father in hopes of restoring his life, and you start to see how a piece of the human body becomes a symbol, a potent symbol that to this day you see all around us, the eye of Horus being this kind of symbol of life or a symbol of power, a symbol of of vision. There's also the eye of Ra and someone might have a sticker of that on their car. It's like, what does that symbolize? It's, It's an actual human 
piece of our uh, genetics that has been taken out of to, uh, just that material plane mm-hmm. and been raised up to this sacred level. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you see other versions, I think the eyes particularly, because there's, <laughs> there's such a potent symbol already, or mm-hmm. we can project so much onto it. Um, and a lot of, uh, I don't know, kind of, Southern Eastern European traditions, we have the, the evil eye. And that is, um, this kind of belief that people can kind of send you like bad juju, bad vibes, and you need to have an actual amulet to protect yourself from it. And for the most part, there's like a, a blue eye. Um, the Italians actually have a couple of different versions of like the protective amulet, which is sometimes like the hand in a particular position and people will wear an, an amulet with kind of a hand and a wrist upon it. Mm. Um, and that's protecting you, uh, from the evil eye. So there's this sense of body parts, the hand, the eye, a head that becomes sacred as well. Yeah, it can get kind of strange because uh, there's like a lucky rabbit's foot. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a like good example. The monkey's paw, like <laughs> the thing that grants you wishes or something, right? And you like, it has like fingers up and you grant, you ask for a wish and like one of the fingers like goes down and it's like this, like. Wait, what? Really? And maybe I'm just making, maybe that's from like The Simpsons, <laughs> but I think that's actually like this, this weird meme. Uh, I don't know how much history it has of like a severed monkey's hand. And you make wishes and the, like, the fingers go down as Whoa. you make the wishes yeah. or something like that. Um, that's kind of like creepy. Part of that is sort of like the kind of like horror effect. Mm. Um, more so than like the, the the power, the magic power of like the eye of Horus. Um, but what, what I was going to say is that like the human body is an object. Yeah. That's kind of like weird to say. <laughs> but we do we do feel attuned to the body as something that we interact with. And you could even say that like the human body is the first object, probably evolutionarily, mm-hmm. yeah. as consciousness emerged, the thing that the conscious being was the most attuned to at first was other humans because we're so social. And so you can see the significance of the human face, our ability to recognize facial mm-hmm. expressions is so deep. Yeah. And we can see how the eyes and the hands and the shape of the body and the feet, um, uh, all those things have such power in our mind. We understand them on such an intrinsic deep level. Yeah. And so the eye of Horus is, it's deeper than a sword. It's like, it's the thing that sees. It yes. is like the symbol of consciousness itself. Right. It's vision. The eye of Sauron. The eye of Sauron, right? It's like that strange, like flip of like evil consciousness. Yeah. Um, but the human body as being sacred mm. without question it's instinctually sacred, yeah. not only as like my body is important to me, just the same way as like my, you know, my lucky shoes are sacred. I don't want to lose them. It's like, I don't want to lose my fucking feet either. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, I don't want them to get chopped off. Like that's like very, very instinctual. But um, if you have like a romance, <laughs> you're like laughing. Uh, maybe the image is funny to you or maybe it's you weren't expecting funny. what I was going to say. But you could also see if you had a romantic partner, how sacred their body would be to you. Mm-hmm. Not like, oh, like I own the body, like not like that, but like um, the idea that like their body is something that is just so magical to you and you love their feet and you love their hands. And, and you honor them. You honor them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, same with uh, people you're friends with or other people you love. It's like you, you are in touch with them as physical embodied beings yeah. and you consider their body to have sacred value. 
in a way that is incredibly deep and mm-hmm. really sort of precedes any sort of material outside object in sacredness Yeah, would yeah. be my argument. Yes. No, that was great. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Mm. Okay, maybe some more modern examples might be fun for us to dip into. Modern myths. Yeah. Well, there's the sword. Yeah. The sword is a very stereotypical symbol, and it's not purely modern. It's been a mythology, obviously, for a long time, because the sword is a huge part of human history for the last several thousand years. But, you know, it, it, it appears in video games. Um, you know, there's, like, the magic sword that you find, or several magic swords. Um, it's in our media, uh, Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I think it's a, we, we ran up Game of Thrones a lot because I think it's so rich and so yeah. deep in its mythology. But there are swords in Game of Thrones that are sacred items, like they're made out of Valerian steel mm-hmm. and they have names yeah. like Ice and Oathkeeper. Mm. Um, and you can see how those swords, they make sense to us in the myth, in the story. Mm-hmm. We understand that John's sword, Longclaw, is like a sacred item. It's yeah. like, don't lose the sword. Like, There's like moments where like he might lose the sword. And it's like, oh no, or someone's going to steal it. So we see the value in it, but we also see like the power in it. Like yeah. John gets a Valerian steel sword and it's like whoa it's not just like oh yeah that's like that's more durable and like holds an edge mm-hmm. and like nice like just like a new car like nice and it's like no it's like he actually like um he acquires some magic power some sort of like heroic chosen one mm. kind of power he becomes sort of a god when he gets the sword and yeah. we recognize that magic power as he gets it i thought an interesting contrast with the game of thrones example is how uh john gives Arya needle Right. Very, very early on in the story, which is a very thin, very small sword. Mm-hmm. It's not Valerian steel. It's not magical. It's not like imbued with these like cultural qualities of like a whole tribe of people, yet it's an extension of her identity. Yeah. And as she moves through the story, kind of losing so much of her family, losing her identity, she carries Needle with her. And mm-hmm. eventually when she goes back to kind of like reclaim Arya Stark no longer just a girl, a nameless girl, she she picks Needle back up. She hid it away. But when she grabs Needle and kind of ventures back to Westeros, she's once again reclaiming a, a part of herself. And and it's an extension of herself, but also, of course, of, of her family, of, of John, who was a loving brother. Mm-hmm. The reign of power is mm. a very prominent object in fiction. Yeah. Or the reigns, obviously, is incredibly prominent as a mythology of modern Western culture. And the reign of power is interesting because um, we don't scoff at the idea that this like this reign, this tiny little thing is right. like the key to the world or it's like contains all this magic power. Yeah. It's actually really compelling for some reason, um, which seems kind of counterintuitive. Right. The wedding ring. The wedding if ring. If I lost my wedding ring, like how devastating that would be. Or the fact yeah. that that is like the marker of something so powerful so binding yeah yeah that's a good example actually we can kind of like do a tangent away from lord of the rings for a second (laughs) for for the wedding ring that's a good good example of a modern sacred object yeah yeah um the wedding ring is just a ring but it's usually made of valuable material Mm -hmm. so there's that sense of value that makes it kind of sacred 
It's also shiny, so it just aesthetically we yeah. see it as being valuable. Catches the eye. Right, like humans love shiny things. <laughs> and anything that's shiny, like metal mm. or like a crystal. We, right. we, we didn't talk about crystals. That was kind of like what inspired the entire episode, honestly. It was like, what's the deal with crystals? Like, why do people, <laughs> why, why are these people buying crystals and talking about like, oh, amethyst means this. Yeah. Um, anyways, we're getting distracted. But the wedding ring, um, it's on your finger, so you see it often. You raise it up to your hand. You're mm-hmm. always using your hand. So mm-hmm. it's there. It's a reminder that's always on you. Yeah. And it's a reminder to other people. Right. Guess what, women? I am married. And it's very obvious. Why? Because I have a wedding ring. Right. And that's like, that's important. Right. I want to show that off to the world. Mm-hmm. Hey, everyone, I am married. Like, that's part of the vow. That's yeah. part of the the ritual of, of marriage. Um, But you can see also just like the, the notion of a magic ring for some reason is also really compelling mm. in Dungeons and Dragons, in video games, sure. in Lord of the Rings, yeah. the rings of power. Right. Uh, there's something, something beautiful and interesting and symbolic about the ring. It's a circle. I think it has something to do with it, mm-hmm. but uh, we like that. You could have done something like, well, how about instead of a ring, it's like a, a shoe of power. And it's like, eh, it doesn't really work so well. Like, not as compelling for some reason. <laughs> shoe. And it's like, what about Wait, like... wait, wait. Dorothy's shoes. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah, but they're not, well. They're powerful. They are powerful. And they're shiny. Yeah. <laughs> shoes, I mean, shoes are a whole other story. There's yeah. also like sneaker culture, which is kind of like, what's the deal with like mm. basketball shoes? Yeah, and like yeah, why yeah. that has such a huge culture around it. And like why are shoes sacred? It's true. But they kind of are. I, yeah, actually, kind of more than like any other item. Like people get hype about shoes. Mm-hmm. There's a whole culture around shoes. Yeah. Like what's the culture around jackets? It's right. like there isn't one. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Okay, I want to throw one out. Okay. Wilson, the ball from Castaway. <laughs> right, so much for saying that boys don't turn objects into companions. Um, <laughs> this old man, he's losing his mind on an island spoiler alert spoiler okay alert. It's, it's not commercials there's no way you don't know about wilson if you wilson. know about castaway the, right <laughs> well is that from that is Wait, that from castaway <laughs> i'm not sure what that's from i don't know what that's from is that from home improvement, from home improvement? <laughs> but it, there's not a character named wilson though is yeah it? there is in the next door neighbors <laughs> is he named wilson? i don't know that's what's coming to mind <laughs> <laughs> i think you might be right but i'm not I'm really like not sure um but uh, what are we talking about? Wilson the ball. Wilson the ball. The sacred soccer well, ball. This, it's a sacred volleyball. volleyball. Um, <laughs> but Wilson becomes sacred because he's alone. Yeah. And he has no one with him. True. And the, the closest thing that could resemble a person is a face on a ball. Right. And that's like the face is sacred. And the other face you was can sacred. Encapsulate a being with a face. Right. Wilson doesn't have a body, but like yeah. the face is enough to be like, oh, there's my friend. Mm-hmm. My friend Wilson. Yeah. And you can see how important that is for us to stay sane. And it has like this weird abstraction effect of where we are so attuned to the human face or the human body that we are able to kind of imbue other things, personify things mm-hmm. with those shapes. And we carve a face into a big boulder. And right. that's like this like strange sacred object on like uh, Easter Island. Right. Um, or the uh, Olmecs had like big giant stone heads. Yeah. And it's like uh, projecting the human sacred body onto things. Mm-hmm. Something that we definitely do. Mm-hmm. 
and it and as you said, it's sort of maintaining this level of sanity. Mm-hmm. When we were watching the the show of the people trying to survive out in Alaska, right? Is it? And they start naming, alone? yeah, alone. Yeah, yeah. And they start naming all the things around them. Like here's like the fishing hole, and it's kind of got this right. name. Or mm-hmm. like here's like rock house. It's like there's this need, there's this compulsion to create relationship to these things, and especially in those extreme survival cases, right. it's like a life and death thing in regards to your sanity in terms mm-hmm. of your mental health. And I think they did a really good job of that with Wilson because, yeah, it, it was what main maintained a thread of human sanity for uh castaway guy whatever his name is right the sort of on on the show alone when they're like naming things Mm -hmm. and the whole idea of like naming objects um like naming a sword like my sword is named needle we talk about this a little bit in the god episode i think this is like a really important concept um it's my idea i haven't read it anywhere so i'm not sure if Anyone else has explored this, but personification, how, mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. how much we tend to personify objects as almost human beings. And that gives us a special relationship with them where we can interact with them as another yeah. person, another being yeah. in a way that's different than like, it's just a volleyball. It's like, yeah, but what if you name it Wilson and put a face on it? Yeah. It's like all these weird relationships start developing right. with the object that yeah. can never exist if you named, if you didn't name the ball at all, or if you named it like white ball or something like that. It's right. like, yeah, it's not really as powerful. Well, an interesting point was uh, we, we consider like the Greek and Roman pantheon to be pretty much the same thing. But before the Romans really moved into Greece and were met with Greek culture, the Roman pantheon was more a personification of just nature and it didn't quite have as much of a personality and drama and color and vibrancy that the Greeks did. And as the Romans interacted with the Greek pantheon, it was like, it spread like wildfire Hmm. like that. The the Greek pantheon just like overtook the Roman. And yes, like the beings merged, you know, like Neptune became Poseidon and Jupiter became uh, Zeus because they had so much more personality. They were more human. They had more projective quality. They were more personified in those archetypal containers. And Hmm. that was more deeply compelling to the human consciousness. Um, It's a really interesting evolution of the two um, kind of traditions. Yeah. Before we end this episode, we're going to run over time, but I feel like this is an important thing that I wanted to get to. Um, It's sort of, we touched upon it a bit already, but just like the difference between masculine and feminine sacred objects. I think it's like a really interesting thing to explore. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I think, is like, what's the deal with crystals? Yeah. Right? (laughs) And that's like something something we do on this podcast is we kind of explore like certain like things are popular with like new age sure. circles, yeah, yeah, but yeah. we're trying to actually inject some sort of understanding of them as opposed to just dismissing them. Mm-hmm. Like you can easily just say like crystals are stupid right. and dismiss it, but it's like, okay, but that's not satisfying. Mm. What's happening with crystals? Yeah. Why do people enjoy crystals? Why are right. they buying them? Why do they imbue them with magic powers? Yeah, uh, They include them in rituals. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, you have a garnet stone. That means like compassion and circle of protection for your i'm kind of sounding a little uh dismissive of it let's talk about it like that but you know why why do we do that yeah um it's an interesting question because as someone who's always felt very like attracted to crystals it's 
there's just something very magical about it. Like, I don't know yeah. what else to say. Yeah. That's like, like the thing that really comes to mind mm-hmm. is like, this thing came out of the earth and it looks like this, like my God, yeah. it kind of just strikes me as like this incredible manifestation of earth magic first and foremost. Yeah. And so that heaviness to it, something so dynamic, colorful, different that can come straight from the earth when I'm just used to seeing like rocks and dirt and pebbles. Like it, it makes the world feel alive to me when I see them and they're beautiful. So shiny, like aesthetic. I love having them like, you know, placed here. Like it, it, it carries all of this interesting energy to it and then having it kind of woven into some sort of like ritualistic practice or having it sitting next to me. It's like I might grab it and hold on to it. And, and I'm not necessarily feeling something from the stone itself per se, but rather I'm connecting with something deep within myself. It's acting as that archetypal container of something deeper and more mysterious. Right. So there's a few things going on here that I perceive with crystals. Um, They're shiny Humans are attracted to shiny things. I think that's like an evolutionary thing with having to do with water. Mm. Whereas like we're really, really attuned to finding water because it's survival. Yeah. So water glimmers in a way that like the environment really doesn't otherwise. So the sort of glimmering effect of something is very, very strong in humans of like, what is that glimmering thing? Um, and also weight. When mm. something is heavy, it feels valuable mm-hmm. for some reason. The density of something, if you lift up, an item, whatever it is, and it feels like hollow or like really, really lightweight. Mm. It kind of feels like trash mm. naturally. Yeah. If you think about all the items in your life that are considered sacred, it's like how many of them are like really, really light and like not dense? It's like most things we consider to be sacred or valuable feel heavy to us. And when something is heavy, you pick up a crystal and you feel that weight. It can be like, whoa, like that's magical. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, yeah. But the sort of uh, the feminine masculine thing here, I think, is is, is something really interesting to touch upon because um, who is it who are attracted to crystals and who buys crystals? Yeah, it tends to be women. It's mostly women. Yeah. Um, and why? What is it that women are paying attention to in sacred objects mm. that's different from what men are paying attention to? And I think that it has something to do with sort of this masculine feminine energy where masculine energy is kind of this outward expansiveness mm-hmm. going and doing and driving kind of energy where men uh both physiologically but also psychologically they kind of have this uh outward pointing mm. stabbing mm-hmm. thing it's like very phallic like the penis goes and it pokes and stabs that's sort of like a masculine thing but that's also like the sword and the arm uh going out into the world and uh bending it to your will, mm. taking nature and making it submit to you, converting the world into tools and objects that can be manipulated for your for your use. It's a very masculine thing, that outwardness, which is why a lot of the things that men can consider to be valuable or sacred or shiny or that they like it, a lot of those things are very functional. Like they're very much tools. Yeah. Men like Swiss Army knives and Leatherman knives and they like... Um, uh, cars and they like souping up their cars and they like guns and mm-hmm. <laughs> not all men yeah. obviously but um, they like uh, you know clothing that is very functional mm-hmm. they set up their environment their their room to be very functional they Tool don't care kits, things like that toolkits yeah, yeah. Um, 
they don't care as much how things look as much as how things work. Mm. So there's this kind of functionality that's a very sort of outward going out energy compared to like a feminine energy, which is much more, again, yonic. There's sort of like, it's uh, open, it's receptive. There's a kind of like coming inward. The energy is coming to me. Um, I am going into my body as opposed to my body expanding outward to do things. And so you can see how the masculine sacred object of like a knife, the sort of analog for women is often something like jewelry mm. or um, something that you wear that mm. really has a, a, an important aesthetic or um, certain things that they put around the house that kind of look a certain way that they like a lot. Yeah. And they care much more about things being aesthetically pleasing uh, and less about things being functional, right? And that's sort of like this inward, unconscious sort of submerging into the body mm-hmm. and being in touch with the body and sort of being in touch with the environment that's in a very flowing sort of um, coming inward way. Look at me. Like the aesthetics um, of what they wear is very much like, look at me. I know that the that eyes are on me. I'm drawing attention onto me in some sense and like, uh, I want to uh, use that as a vehicle of some sense Yeah, where men are like, we're the ones looking, we look and the women are looked at. Mm. And, um, so I think you can see that in sort of crystals. Yeah. There's something that like about the crystal brings me into my body. It submerges me into my unconscious. Yeah. And that's sort of what is sacred to me is like this ability to kind of, uh, embody or, um, sort of use eros as kind of a mode of being as opposed to the logos. Whereas men see a crystal and they're like, what does it do? <laughs> you know, it's like, I could like throw it, I guess like this yeah. outwardness where mm-hmm. I could like hit someone with it. Yeah. Or maybe I could use it to like smash garlic or something like that. But like, otherwise like, what is the crystal? Right. What's the point. Right. And they're missing something. Right. It's much more subtle. Yeah. The woman's relationship to that or the clothes or the jewelry to me, it's like a very embodied feeling and it mm-hmm. alters me I feel changed by wearing that item or having something close by. And it does get you in touch, I think, with that archetypal feminine in a really powerful way where I feel grounded and embodied and ready to receive, Um, especially like with crystals, I think, like in the way a lot of people tend to use them as that like grounding principle or to like receive energy literally like Mm -hmm. symbolically from the crystal it's like look if the crystal amethyst is making you feel like you're receiving healing energy then it doesn't matter if it's real or not Mm -hmm. it's the same thing about the shoes like it's it's becoming a vehicle and a channel to get you embodied into that gateway deeper into the psyche and into the soul and when I wrote down what my typical sort of sacred items are, Mm -hmm. they are all those kind of things. It's the, the malas I wear that are made from crystal. It's a particular jacket. That's really sacred to me. The wolf jacket. Um, this this red blanket with all this like ornate stitching on it. Mm -hmm. It's all these things that I kind of wrap around myself and kind of bring me into this like new mode of being. Right. Not so much like, you know, a knife or a toolkit, which it's like, yeah, it's nice. But, you know, those other things, those are much more sacred to me. Right. Right. By comparison, it's like I have things that are very functional. Mm. And I, I mean, I'm pretty in touch with sort of like my feminine side. Yeah, it's absolutely. Way. And like, yeah. Um, I do. I have developed a strong appreciation for how things look 
Mm-hmm. And I like to set up my space to be like aesthetically pleasing and mm-hmm. like get in touch with sort of like the resonance of things as yeah. opposed to like, what does it do? But the what does it do kind of thing is still very prominent for me. And yeah. a lot of like the things I find sacred is like, I love knives. Mm. And that doesn't mean I have a shit ton of knives, but I do have like a few knives that I like a lot and they're yeah. beautiful to me and they're, they appear in my dreams all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but my guitar, yeah. it's like this tool. I think it's beautiful. I love looking at it, but like playing it is the main thing. Yeah. Uh, my shoes. Mm-hmm. I love having like cool shoes that are really durable and functional, but that also look a certain way. Um, so there's that kind of this, uh, this sort of masculine sort of functional utility thing that's going on. Um, you know, men and their toys. Men <laughs> love like toys. Like look at these, like look at the man cave. Right. Like, oh, welcome to my man cave. And like, there's all like this like stuff in it. There's like all these toys. Oh, and it's like, yeah, it's a good point. Like, oh, check out like my TV. It's like cool. And like, I have like, uh, you know, like my Xbox is like really souped up and I have like this like uh, cool art on my Xbox and huh, yeah. uh, I have my bar and like my bar has like all this like cool stuff you can do with like bottles and uh, making cocktails and like I have like all my stuff down here and like here's like my, my kit of wrenches that like I never use but like it's cool, right? Yeah. You know, guys are much more likely to do that. Mm-hmm. Quick disclaimer, this doesn't mean that women only like crystals and men <laughs> only like hammers like that's a huge generalization <laughs> there are plenty of women out there who are incredibly handy who have a deep appreciation for tools yeah they got their own are, badass knives yeah they're incredibly capable hands. of working on things yeah. and going out and doing things and there's plenty of men out there who are like really really into like dressing nice and ha- having for their sure. hair perfect and uh, a lot of men like crystals too yeah i like absolutely. crystals i have a mala he does. I have, I have my like blood red mala, the yeah, garnet stone. The garnet stone. I love it. Yeah. I think it's awesome. No, I think what's fun is we get to play between the archetypal uh, dualities of yeah. masculine and feminine. So in your life, you are going to have both of those items. Mm-hmm. Maybe you feel more in touch with some of those that are on one side of the spectrum. Maybe not. But either way, it's all deeply human and gets us into that relationship with things that material that materially remind us of something so much more so much so much more sacred and that is what these these objects really do they get us in touch with the mythic world of the psyche right so reflect upon the objects in your life yeah yeah what are the things that are important to you you might find that you actually don't have many objects in your life that feel sacred to you and maybe that you actually realize you're kind of surrounded by a bunch of crap that you don't really care about and one of the most spiritual things you can do is cleanse the objects in your life. Mm. Get rid of stuff that you don't like. If it's not beautiful, get rid of it. If it if you haven't used it, get rid of it. And you can find that if this sort of cleansing of spring cleaning, it's spring, time to spring clean, um, that cleansing thing can be a very spiritual act. It can actually make your life feel more sacred and the objects in your life can feel more beautiful and valuable and magical. And you can get in touch with this deep energy right now if you find this podcast useful please consider supporting us on patreon go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org if you'd like to keep up to date with our projects attend one of our live events or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org thanks for listening see you later